0: all so got a uh, brochure. Anybody not get a brochure as you walked in the door? Local church ministry directory. If you could take a minute and fill that out. That way I won't feel too bad when I'm preaching and you're filling it out. <laughs> that was a joke. Uh, Not every church is listed in there. You're going to find churches uh, that maybe your church isn't in there. These are some churches that we're working with. This is just uh, mainly for those of you who may be new students, maybe some of you who are freshmen, maybe some of you who are looking for a change in your church involvement. Uh, This is to give you a little idea of what's out there to maybe cut down on all the traveling you have to do to visit all those churches on different Sundays. Um, One opportunity that I did want to mention that's not in there is... uh, a great opportunity down in the inner city of uh, Los Angeles with a church first evangelical free Church of Los Angeles I spent a year down there as a senior tutoring uh, going to church there being involved in ministry there and rich Cantrell rich I you got to stand up for me because I can't see you are you here there you are there he is rich baby over there uh, rich is leading a team down there if you need if you want to be involved in just an absolute incredible ministry giving your life away uh, to people then you need to talk to rich and he can help uh, get you collected there. We will collect those brochures from you uh, as you leave chapel. So if you can fill those out maybe right here in the beginning, then uh, we'll take those from you. When I was 16 years old, I fell out of a boat. I fell out of a boat, and the boat was going about 25 miles an hour. When I was 8 years old, I was standing in a marina with my father. We had just taken one of our boats and docked it at the marina. And as we were leaving to go to our car, we're standing on the beach, and these guys come up in a boat, and they're kind of yelling, and they're calling to the shore, and we stop, and we're looking, and they they pull a man out of the boat, one of those little aluminum fishing boats. He's an old guy, and they pull him up, and they pull him up on the shore, and then somebody comes running out of the marina with a blanket, and they put the blanket over top of the man, and I realized as a small little eight-year-old child that the man was dead. What had happened was he had been fishing with his grandson and somehow the engine had turned. If you know anything about outboard engines, you know that you can't turn them too fast or it just turns the boat up on its side. And somehow he had turned it too fast and he had tumbled out of the boat, lost his balance. And the boat started circling around because the engine was torqued in that way and it was circling around and finally it hit him and the blades caught him and they, and they killed him. He drowned, cut him up, knocked him out. So there I am, a 16-year-old, and as I fall into the water, still to this day having no idea how I fell out of that boat, I'm the only one in the boat, I fall into the water and immediately, flashing in my mind is the scene of that man being pulled up on the beach, dragged up on the dirt, and the blanket being over top of him. And all I can think about is I don't want to die. And so I go down as far as I can go down. And I didn't have a chance to catch my breath because I mean, you fall out of a boat, you're not really thinking about it. So I'm under there. and You know how you're, just, you're right at that point where your lungs are just saying, air, 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 air. And I'm down underwater, and finally I come up expecting full on to see the bow of an aluminum boat in my face. And I look, but the, the boat is it's traveling off in another direction. But in that moment, in that moment, I knew fear. Boy, did I know fear. I knew fear like I'd never known fear before. I fully expected that boat to be circling me like a great white shark, ready to pounce and kill. There's a lot of talk about fear these days. I don't know about you, but I hear all sorts of things about phobia. I did a little research, did a little research about phobias. You tell me if you know what these are. Claustrophobia, everybody knows what that is, right? Afraid of being in, in small, tight rooms. Agoraphobia, all you psych, or sorry, behavioral study majors will know that one. Agoraphobia, anybody know what that is? No, that's probably right, I can't hear you. Uh, it's fear of being alone in a crowd, agoraphobia. Homophobia, that's one you hear in the news a lot, fear of homosexuals. Acrophobia, fear of heights. Airplane phobia, that's an easy one, fear of trains. (laughs) Anacrophobia, anacrophobia. If you don't know what that is, watch the movie, you'll find out. Me, I'm a little afraid of heights, but I, when I was in college, I had the ultimate phobia of every college student. Maybe you don't have it. Those of us who have it, you'll identify with me immediately. I had dormophobia. Dormaphobia, you may not know what it is, but it's very simple. Dormaphobia is the fear of leaving your dorm room, leaving your dorm, and all you're wearing is your underwear. Dormaphobia. Now, you laugh, but I knew a guy. I knew a guy who made it all the way from Hotchkiss down to the dining center with two of his friends, and as he opened the door at the dining center, he looked down and he was wearing his boxer shorts. So it can happen. Dormaphobia does exist. We can talk about different kinds of phobia. This morning I want to talk about what A.W. Tozer calls the terror of God, the phobia of God, the fear of God. As we do a series on the attributes of God and come to know him, I want to talk about the fear of God. Would you pray with me? And as we pray, would you stand with me in honor of our God? Our Father, we give you thanks for the day you've given to us. Thanks for the time of worship we could have of you. You are truly a great and an awesome and a powerful and a mighty God. Lord, we give you thanks. Thanks that you saved us and you chose us when you did not have to. That there would be nothing in us that would warrant that salvation, but you have reached down and plucked us out of a net and lifted us on high to reign with you. We give you praise for that. Lord, as we come to the topic of fear of you, fear of our god our savior i pray that you would give clarity to our minds help us to understand the god that you are and so to relate to you in the way that you deserve to be related to we pray this in christ's name amen our word phobia comes from the greek word fear greek word fear is phobos it means fear dread terror in its most archaic meanings it had the idea of to take flight You see something and you just take off. You run the other way. In the Bible, the word fear is used in two ways. And it's very important that you understand that when you approach the Bible. I've defined these two ways of biblical fear, one as an uncontrollable terror, and the second as a reverential dread. Let me illustrate that for you. An uncontrollable terror. Another story from my past. I was a Boy Scout. Any Boy Scouts here? Amen. Long live the Boy Scouts. Boy Scouts was great. I loved Boy Scouts. And you know, you wear those little sash things across you and you try and fill it all up with badges. And so we were on a camp and I wanted to get one of the camping badges. And to do that, I had to go out with three of my other friends and we had to we had to camp on our own. Set up a camp, live on our own, do all that kind of stuff. And we had one sort of counselor guy with us. Well, we're, we go to bed this one night and I wake up. And my buddy, is a good friend of mine, I wake up and he's, he's got his hand over my mouth and he's, he's this far away from my face. And, and he's just, he's holding my mouth, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I, so, you know, I kind of wake up and you come out of a cloud of sleep and, and I'm looking at him and he looks at me and he's as white as a sheet. He looks me dead in the eye and he mouths the word, bear. And I begin to listen. And in the dry pine needles that surround our tent, you begin to hear the small crunch, crunch, crunch of a bear circling around our tent. Now, I don't know, at night, things sound like they're two inches from your nose, so he may have been a little further away. But you can imagine, there was four very scared little Boy Scouts in their tent. And all we'd been told was, don't keep food in your tent, because if you do, he'll come in. And immediately, we look at the guy between us, because he was kind of a geeky guy, and he always wanted to bring, like, food into the tent. we can't bring food in the tent, you're going to bring the bears in. So immediately, we're, like, searching through his bag, trying to see if he's got anything, and he doesn't, so we're feeling safe. I knew terror right then. There's nothing like being in an enclosed tent and having a bear circling around your tent. That's an uncontrollable terror. The Bible also talks about a reverential dread. A reverential dread. Let me tell you what that's not. reverence. We see that in our Bibles a lot, right? The reverence of God. Reverence used in the terms that it's used in the Bible doesn't refer to the reverence that we give to the flag. We don't let the flag touch the ground, right? That's giving reverence to the flag. It doesn't refer to the reverence that we give to leaders when we call them Mr. President or for my Canadian brothers, Mr. Prime Minister. It doesn't refer to eating your mom's cooking and giving her reverence even when she makes bad potatoes. Vine defines this reverence as a wholesome dread of displeasing God. A wholesome dread of displeasing God. Open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 20 and one verse that I think clearly defines the difference between an uncontrollable terror and a wholesome dread of displeasing God. Exodus chapter 20. You'll remember at the beginning of the chapter that Moses is being given the Ten Commandments by God. And all the people gather around the mountain. And as they do, verse 18 says this, And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled. They trembled and they stood at a distance. Then they all said to Moses, You speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us, lest we die. Lest we die. They knew the fear of God. But notice Moses' response to the people. He says to them in verse 20, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you. And in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. Do not be afraid. God has come to put the fear of you in him. What does that mean? It doesn't make any sense, Moses. You say, be afraid, but don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, but be afraid. How can you be both? Well, I think that is the difference between an uncontrollable terror. When man comes into the presence of God, it's an uncontrollable terror. But God commands us to remain with a strong dread, a strong fear, a strong dis- fear of displeasing Him in any way. That's a reverential dread. We are not to have an uncontrollable terror of God, but we are to have a reverential dread. One is an uncontrollable. It's, it's reactive. It's, it's being terror-stricken in your soul. The other is a controllable fear. It's proactive. It's a healthy, wholesome, wholesome in the sense of our whole being, dread. Let me give you an illustration to help bring this home. If I was to reach under here right now and pulled out a large gun, and I pulled out this gun, and, and smiling began to shoot some of you, I just began shooting, 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 you would experience terror. You would be diving. You'd be going under chairs. You'd be running for the doors. There'd be screaming. There'd be shouting. There'd be panic. Everybody would be going everywhere. Terror, terror, terror. The man's got a gun. He's going to kill me. And you'd be, you'd be out. You'd be gone. But if I was to take that gun and you knew me and you knew I was a somewhat sane person and I had a little holster here and I just put it in my holster and I was to preach with that gun in my holster, I think you would have a reverential dread for me. You would have a reverential dread, a sincere desire not to displease me in any way. A man has got a gun. I'll do whatever he asks. Oh, good message, good message, uh-huh, uh-huh. That is the difference between a reverential dread and uncontrollable terror. Much like when we look to our fathers. I don't know about you, I used, to sit, I used to sit at the window and I used to sing this little song. I just thought of this now. I used to sing this song around 6 o'clock every night when I was a kid. Something about, when my father gets home. You know, a little kid. And I would sing this song and I would stand there at the window waiting for my dad to get home. Because it was a great thing. Dad's home, it's time to play, you wrestle, you know, you do stuff. It's dad, it's dad, he's fun. Come on, bring it on, Dad. A dadmeister, right? <laughs> Bring him on. You gotta love your dad, and we we love our fathers, just like we love God. We love God in that way, don't we? You ever read the Narnia series and the, the Peter and Mary and Edmund and Susan, the kids, you know, and they play with Aslan, who, who's sort of symbolic of, of Christ, and and it says that they roll around on the grass with him. And I love the way that C. S. Lewis says it. He says that he says that they they were never sure if they were playing with a kitten or a thunderstorm. Isn't that great? They were never sure if they were playing with a kitten. Or a or a thunderstorm. But we can fear our dads, too. Remember those nights when you did something, like, really, really wrong? <laughs> and all you got from your mother, no, she didn't, she didn't spank you, she didn't scold you, she just looked at you in the eye, said, go to your room and wait for your father to come home. Wait till your father gets home. That is a wholesome dread. <laughs> that is an, almost an uncontrollable terror. That is the difference between an uncontrollable terror and a wholesome dread. Well, why? Why is it so important? Why is it so important that we talk about the fear of God? I believe it's important because the concept of the fear of God is like a brilliant laser beam that shines from the book of Genesis straight through to the book of Revelation. It's important to God because he commands it. In 1 Peter 2.17, he says, Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king." In 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 35, he says, You shall not fear other gods. The Lord who brought you up out of Egypt, Him, Him, you shall fear. In Ecclesiastes 12:13, Great verse. Fear God and keep His commandments. When all is said and done, fear God and keep His commandments. When I'm told to do something, I don't know about you, but I like to look at why. I still have that five-year-old thing in me that always says, Why? 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 Tell me why. And so I ask that. As I come to these passages and I read these, I say, Lord, why do I have to fear you? And I came up with three reasons. There's probably more. But as I looked through the scriptures that talked about the fear of the Lord, I kind of capsulized those into three different topics. And I'd like to take you through those this morning. The first reason we fear God is because he is powerful. Because he is powerful. We've already looked at Exodus chapter 20. And as the mountain smoked and it says the smoke rose from the mountain at the presence of God like a great funnel like a great furnace billowing up and the people were stricken with dread and terror and they said Moses you speak to God not us we can't take it it's too much his power is too much they knew the fear of God In Exodus or I'm sorry in 1 Kings chapter 18 verse 30 you don't need to turn there you'll remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and how Elijah built an altar. And he said, okay, here's the test, you prophets. We'll see how powerful your Baal God is. So he builds a little a little, a little thing there, a little altar, and he puts some stuff on it, and he builds it all so it's going to burn nice. And then he says, get four jugs of water and dump it on top. And everybody's going, whoa, okay. So they dump the four jugs of water on top. He says, do it again. So they go and they do it again. They go back again. He says, do it again. So they come back three times. Three times, four is twelve. Twelve huge jugs of water over top of this whole thing. Enough water to fill up an entire drench around it. And then Isaiah prays. Elijah, so I prays. And fire comes down from heaven. An incredible demonstration of the power of God. And all the people can do is fall on their faces and say, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. They knew the fear of God. In the New Testament, in the book of Mark, Over there, one of three accounts of Christ with his disciples on a sea of Galilee, Mark chapter four, verse thirty-seven. Jesus says, "You go over on the other side, and leaving the multitude, they took him along with them, just as he was on the boat, and the other boats were with them." Verse thirty-seven, and there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filled up. It's so, it's so easy to read these things. And just like, okay, and so the boat was already filled up. And we don't even think about that. Okay, stop and think about that for a second. How many of you have done any kind of boating? Put your hand up. How many of you have ever been in a somewhat panicked situation with the boat? Maybe you found a leak in your boat. Ever had that happen? Okay, that's maybe you got in a big storm. We've had a few of those. My dad and I doing some little trips and once, you know, had a huge wave come over the whole top of the boat and we were soaked. And I mean, you, it's, it's pretty intimidating when you're out there in your little boat and pretty soon the waves start coming over the edge. And he says, That's what's happening. The disciples are there. And in verse 38, he says, And Christ himself was in the stern of the boat, in the back of the boat, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and they said, Hey, don't you care what's happening here? We are getting swamped. What do you think you're doing sleeping in the back of the boat? Come on. You can just see them going, what are you doing back there? And Christ arises. And without a word to them, he stands up and he says, hush, be still. And immediately the storm stops. What was the disciples' reaction to that demonstration of his power? Verse 41. And they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him Who then is this they feared a great fear is the way it reads in the greek romans chapter 9 you don't need to turn there it doesn't talk so much about fear it does talk about the salvation of god and it does talk about how that salvation comes from god only from god and i don't know about you but when i read those verses in romans chapter 9 about the wrath of God and about how God has destined some to wrath and has destined some to destruction and has destined others to experience His grace, that provokes fear in my heart, fear of His power, His power of salvation. In Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, disciples are fishing and Christ comes up on the shore and He says, put your net down into the deep water and you'll catch a fish. And Simon answered, Master, we have worked hard all night and caught nothing, but at your bidding I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, in verse 6, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. A lot of boat stories here this morning, aren't there? I didn't plan that. But when Simon Peter saw that, He fell down at Jesus' feet and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. Demonstration of his great power evoked fear in their hearts. We fear God because he is powerful. We don't need to look at it, but over in verse 26, again, it says that all, all the people around Christ, when they watched him heal the paralytic, and, and, and he said, for, you're forgiven of your sins. They all responded in terror and in fear about who this man was. God is powerful. He is omnipotent, and so we fear him. But there's another reason for us to fear God. That's because God brings judgment. We fear God because he brings judgment. Second Peter. Describe some of that judgment for you. Don't turn there. Just listen to these words, will you? But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire. Reserved for fire. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And then down to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will Will be burned up. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. This world will be destroyed, and it will be destroyed by God Himself, the Creator. Philippians chapter 2 talks about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And you'll remember that immediately above those verses that talk about that fear and trembling and working out of our salvation are these verses. Therefore, also God highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're all going to do it. Praise the Lord, right? We're all going to stand before him. For you and I, it's a joyous event. We stand there and say, yes, yes. I praise you. You are God, Jesus Christ. But for the unbeliever, it's a terrifying event. And so we need to fear God because of His judgment. In Revelation chapter 14 and chapter 15, talks about the eternal gospel. Let me read it to you. In verse 6 of chapter 14, And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God! Fear God! And give Him glory. Over in chapter 15, after the the angels, the reapers came. Remember the reapers? And they let down their great sickle. They divide the earth between the saved and the unsaved. In chapter 15, In response to that, it says, All the angelic hosts sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? Who will not fear? We will all fear. Fear of God. Judgment alone, though, is not enough to instill the fear of God in man. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon... um, I'm trying to remember the name of it now. What was it called? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You need to read that if you've never read it. He says this almost every natural man who hears of hell flatters himself that he shall somehow escape it. The fear of judgment, the proclaiming of judgment is not enough to instill in us the fear of God. A. W. Tozer adds that because the fear of God is a supernatural thing. It can never be raised by repeated warnings about war or communism or depressions. But well, what can raise that fear of God? What can instill in us that fear of God? Certainly the Holy Spirit. But what evokes in us that experience? I'd like to suggest a third quality of why we would fear God, and that is because He is holy. We fear God because He is holy. Exodus chapter 3. You remember, Moses is gone. He's being a shepherd for 40 years out in the wilderness shepherding his, his sheep and one day he's out there with his flock and he looks over and he sees a burning bush and the Bible says he ran over at the at the wonderment of this bush that was on fire but it was not being consumed by the fire and as he approached as he approached he heard a voice from the bush saying Moses stop right there for this is holy ground this is holy ground remove your sandals and as he realizes that it's the voice of God and that he is in the presence of of the holiness of God all he can do is fall on his face he hid his face it says He's hiding his face lord i can't be in your presence because of the fear i have of you in 2 samuel chapter 6 and verse 9 you remember that the israelites are, are, are transporting the ark and david is there and, and and the men are you remember there's a special way and they had the poles that would slide through so they wouldn't touch the actual ark but they put it on a cart and the cart was going along and it hit a hit a rut in the road, and as it did, the ark, the ark of God began to tip. And so Uzzah, one of the priests, he reaches out. Remember that? He reaches out. And we think, well, that's nice. We don't want the ark to fall. And immediately, because he broke the rule of God, because he broke the standard of holiness that God had clearly declared in his word, he was struck down dead. And the next verse says, And David feared God that day. He feared God because of his holiness. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel's been praying for three weeks, fasting and praying and saying, Lord, I need to hear from you. I need to know what's going to happen in the kingdom. And he's he's seeking a vision or a message from God. And he'd had them before. And as he was walking out by a river with some of his men, suddenly a bright, glowing person, an angel, stood before him. And at the sight of him, everyone who was with him took off, gone, flight. History, the we're out of here. We cannot be in the presence of that. And Daniel, that holy man of God, that holy man of God, turns white like he's dead. He says, and he fell to the ground at the very first word of that angel, being in the presence of that holiness. He fell to the ground on his face, out of fear. Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Paul, or Saul, says he fell to the ground and those with him, out of fear, And then, of course, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Dr. MacArthur has preached that to us. Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah, in his vision, comes into the throne room of God and stands before God, and all he can say is, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a sinful man in the presence of a holy God. Don't tell me there wasn't a little bit of fear in Isaiah's heart. There was a whole lot of fear. You talk about Mary or Joseph, the Apostle John, all responded in fear in the presence of God or of His messengers. R.C. Spall rightly said that we fear God because He is holy. As fearsome as death is, it is nothing in comparison to meeting a holy God. When we encounter Him, the, the totality of our creatureliness breaks upon us and scatters the myth that we have believed about ourselves that we are demi-gods or junior-grade deities who will try to live forever. A.W. Tozer writes, The presence of the divine always brought fear to the hearts of sinful men. This terror had no relation at all to mere fear of bodily, bodily harm. It was a dread consternation experienced far in toward the center and core of the nature, much farther in than that fear experienced as a result of the normal instinct for physical self preservation. And John Calvin said that hence that dread and amazement with which, as, script- as the scriptures uniformly relate, holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God. Men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Is that how you look at God? The issue is who God is. Who God is. Sin in the presence of a holy God will always result in fear. But what about us? We're the born again, right? We have Jesus as our friend and our Redeemer. We have the Father who we can call our Abba Father, our Dad. We have the Spirit who dwells in our hearts. John 17, when the Lord prays for us, and He says, I pray that they would have the same unity, Father, that I have with you? How can we have that same closeness, that same relationship, that same love for God, and yet still have a fear of God? How do we combine that, the fear of God, with the obvious unity that we have with Him? Thirdly, I'd like to talk about the practical effects of the fear of God on the lives of men. You'll remember that there's two elements of the fear of God. There is an absolute terror... The terror you experience when you've got the bear circling around your tent. And then there's the reverential dread that you experience when a man stands before you with a gun at his side. God always calms the terror in a believer. Look at it sometime. The places where men were face-to-face with God, and almost inevitably, he would say to them, what? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And yet in other scriptures, he says, Fear God. Fear God and keep his commandments. So God always commands the reverential dread in a believer, but he always calms the terror in a believer. Thus we can conclude that the fear of God drives out the fear of man. The fear of God drives out the fear of man. When we fear God, we will fear no one else. It will result in several different things. The first is a holiness in our walk. When we fear God... We will experience a holiness in our walk. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Paul writes to the Corinthians. And as he does, he begins to truly open his heart to them. In the preceding verses, he, he calls out to them and he says, Oh, Corinthians, why don't you open your hearts back to us? Then he says, Do not realize that God has set you apart. And he quotes from the Old Testament toward the nation Israel, and he applies that to to these Corinthians. And he says, in the same way, God has set you apart. You are His holy people. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, he writes this, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. When we truly fear God, we will have holiness in our walk. Some of you, some of you, are holy people. I know some of you. I spend time with some of you. I pray for some of you. Some of you I probably don't even know, but some of you are doing it. You are doing it. You have come here because you want to be a holy person. You have come here because you want to be set apart for Christ. You want to be trained. You want to be different than the world. And that just that spurs me on. Iron sharpening iron. spurs me on. Some of you are not doing very well. Some of you are not pursuing holiness in your walk. My question to you is, when you're out on that date, maybe you're with your girlfriend, and and, and you're, you're questioning in your mind, where should I put my hand? You ask yourself this question. Who do I fear? Do I fear God, the powerful, judging creator of the earth? If you do, your hand will stay where it needs to stay. When you think about your thought life, maybe you struggle with your thought life, you ask yourself this question, who do I fear? Do I fear God? Maybe it's sarcasm. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's slander. We can point the finger at all of us. I can point the finger at me. When I do those things, who do I fear? Do I fear God or do I fear men? There will be a second effect of the fear of God in our lives and that is submission in our relationships, specifically in our marriage relationships. Ephesians chapter 5 verse that every man memorizes. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 says And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. I'm sorry, that wasn't the verse I was going to read at first, but be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. He's talking about as we come together and as we pray together and share our psalms with one another, that we are to be subject to one another, and we do that out of the fear of God. And then, particularly with marriage, he says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then in verse 33, he says, Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself. And let the wife see to it that she respect or that she fear her husband. And we don't like to say that, right? Wives, fear your husbands. And that's kind of a confusing verse to me. But turn over for a second, if you would, to 1 Peter. I think we gain some other understanding. 1 Peter, chapter 3. Verse 1 says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if them any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now skip down to verse, uh, verse 5. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. What well, do you mean? Fear my husband? Reverence my husband? And, and yet and yet don't. You tell me to, 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 to submit to my husband out of fear and then you say, don't submit out of fear. What does that mean? Well, I'll give you what I think it means. And if you disagree, you're welcome to. I think what it means is this. The issue is not if you fear your husband. The issue is if you fear God. For if you fear God, if you truly fear God, then you will submit to one another. Wives will submit to their husbands. You and I will submit to our elders. We will submit to one another out of reverence, out of fear of Christ. Wives, are you submitting? There's some of you here today. Are you submitting to your husbands? Not being the doormat but respecting him out of the fear of Christ. The third effect the fear of God will have on us is integrity in our work. Integrity in our work. I don't know about you, but I love clear instruction. When we were down at um, the inner city with Missions Conference, we memorized a verse, and I thought about this morning having all you guys stand up and see if you could remember this verse from our memorized, because we did actions to it. So I will do it for you. I'm not going to embarrass all those people, But the verse is Colossians chapter 3. And the reason I like it so much is because it gives clear instruction. There ain't no questions about this one. There ain't no figuring out about this one. God says do it and we need to do it. And that's the kind of thing that I like. The clearer stuff is, the easier it is, right? I remember at a time that um, when I went to ask my, my my, my, my wife now, I went to ask her parents when we were dating if I could marry her. And she was in Japan at the time on a missions trip. So I drove down there, I live in Toronto, Canada, brothers, any brothers over there, Uh, I live in Toronto, and so I drove down eight hours to Indiana, Bremen, Indiana, a little town of Bremen, Indiana, my wife says there's 4,000 people there, I say there's 2,000, and uh, I drove into town there, I came up and spent the weekend, and and came in late on a Friday night, and spent all day Saturday, the whole family was over, getting to meet them, getting to know them, you know, building up, saying okay, just going to ease in, spend a little time, got it all figured out, you know, going to sit them down, and I'm going to say, Mr. Heaney, I'd like to marry your daughter, and uh, kind of goes on, and then, and then so Saturday all of a sudden ended, and I hadn't done it, so I think, okay, I'm going to do it Sunday. I'm going to do it Sunday. I'm going to do it Sunday. So Sunday comes, and we go to church, and church is, you know, four hours long. We go to church, and then somebody invites us over for dinner after church. And so we go over there, and they've got a pool, and they want us to go swimming. So we eat dinner, and we have this long dinner where everybody's there. There's a bunch of people there from church. We go swimming. Not only do we swim, we decide to have a volleyball game in the pool. So we start playing volleyball in the pool. And then all of a sudden, somebody shouts out, my land, it's four o'clock. We've got to get ready for church. And my father-in-law happens to be preaching that night. And he says, Paul, we've got to go. We've got to go. And, and, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, i got to tell him. i got to tell him. It's so, like, yeah, Mr. Heaney, I, uh, I've, been, uh, I've been dating your daughter, and uh, I like her.
1: <clears throat>
0: he said, oh, okay. Okay, thank you. <laughs> and he left. He had to go. He had to preach. So I got in the car, and I'm driving away, and I feel terrible. I mean, I've got a day off work, I've driven eight hours down, i spent all this money, you know, I got everything arranged, and I didn't do it. And, I, of course, you know, you tell everybody you're going to do it, mistake number one. So you got all these people at home waiting for you. They're going to say, hey, hey, how'd it go, big guy, huh? <laughs> and what are you going to say? I, I checking out, I checking out, I checking out. So I'm driving home, and I, I mean, I just this huge cloud of depression in the car, and I'm sure there's this cloud following along my little... A lot of car just like Dave Betto's, you know, those little tin cans. And uh, <laughs> Sorry, Dave. <laughs> and uh, I drive for about an hour, and I pull off to a truck stop. That was my first mistake. I mean, never be depressed around a bunch of truckers. <laughs> These big guys, you know, hey, what's the matter with you? I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do? So I try calling her folks. Ring, 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 they're at church. Can't get a hold of them, no answering machine. So I think, okay, I gotta go back. I gotta be a man, I gotta be strong, I gotta do this, I gotta go back. So I'll call my boss and I'll get tomorrow off work as well. Look around for my day timer, I don't have it. Just call information, he has an unlisted number. The man is a businessman, he has an unlisted business number. To this day I'll never understand why he had an unlisted business number. So now I'm sitting there, I can't get a hold of my boss to get the day off. I can't get a hold of my future father in law to ask him if I can come back. And so I'm sitting there in this truck stop on the verge of tears, and I think, who can I call? Who can I talk to? And immediately my mind goes to the man who led me to Christ, and that was my brother-in-law. So I call up, and I say, Kent, Kent, what am I going to do? I tell him the whole scenario, and I can tell he's just kind of smiling on the other end. And uh, he says, Paul, come home. He says, just come home. You can write him a letter. Just tell him what happened. Just come home. Those were words of life to me. You know, those were words of life. To have somebody just that clear instruction. That's what that, that whole illustration was for. Just to tell you about why I like clear instruction. It has nothing to do with the fear of God. <laughs> Colossians chapter 3. Hey, if you know this, you, you Hollywood guys, say it with me. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. <laughs> Sorry. As for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. As for the Lord, rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And then up in verse 22, he says, In all things, slaves, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. If you've got a job, you know who your boss is? You know who your boss is? Your boss is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to work like he's standing there right beside you. And when you start to think about that, that's great. There is no temptation to hang out at the coffee because he's omnipresent. You don't have to wait for him to walk by like you do your boss, right? He's there all the time. You are going to work hard because you're working for God. You're not going to pilfer out of the cash register because he's right there. He's with you. He's watching you. You need to work for God out of the fear of God to obey him. The fourth thing that the fear of God instills in us is an accountability in our evangelism. And this one speaks to me probably more than any other. Back to 1 Peter again. You'll notice that 1 Peter talks a lot about the fear of God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. <clears throat> but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their, literally, fear or their intimidation. And do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and fear, with reverence. Now, if you read those two verses together, you say, Wait a second, Peter. You just said, Don't be afraid of men. Don't fear their intimidation. Don't be afraid of them. And then you go to the next verse, and he says, When they ask you, maybe not kindly, maybe with a gun at your head, to give an account of the hope that is in you, do that without fear. Or do it with fear, rather. And you say, well, why am I supposed to not have fear and yet supposed to have fear? The issue, again, is you are to have fear, but not fear of men, the fear of God. The fear of God. When you're walking down the street, when I'm walking down the street, I don't know if this ever happens to you, but it happens to me. Maybe I'm at a gas station, maybe I'm somewhere, maybe I'm doing something, maybe I'm standing in a store, And all of a sudden I look at a person and I think, I wonder if that person has Christ. I wonder if that person is going to heaven or if that person is going to hell. And the Spirit seems to prick my heart and says, Why don't you ask Him? Why don't you talk to Him about the Lord? You ever do this one? Maybe like you're walking, we used to go down to Hollywood and, and hand out tracks and share with people, and I always did this one. You're like, pick a crack in the sidewalk, okay? You say, okay, when he passes that crack, I'm going to talk to him. Here I go. I'm going to, he passed the crack. Okay, when he passes that crack, I'm going to talk to that person. Okay, he passed that crack. When he goes, oh, he's gone, no chance. <laughs> I guess the Lord didn't want him saved. Wasn't one of the elect. The fear of God instills accountability for evangelism in our lives. Dr. Feinberg, who used to teach at Talbot Seminary, said, Christians are like the great tributaries of the Arctic. They're frozen at the mouth. Why are we frozen at the mouth? Because we do not fear God the way we should. I do not fear God the way I should. I love the Apostle Paul. No fear of man in that man. No fear of men at all. But he had a fear of God, an incredible fear of God. Proper understanding of the fear of God will also result in a fifth thing, and that is respect for authority. And I save the best for last. (laughs) Authority. We hate talking about authority, don't we? Romans chapter 13. You better turn there so you don't think I'm making the words up. Romans chapter 13. Verse 1, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Then in verse 7, render to all what is due to them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear and honor to whom honor. When you're driving down the freeway, and the government, governing authority, has posted a sign, and the sign says, in its simplest form, 5-5. And because you have to have a license from the government that requires you to take a test to see that you understand what all those signs mean, immediately in your mind you realize that this means I must drive 55 miles per hour. And that is all. I am not allowed to go 56 miles per hour. I am only allowed to drive 55 miles per hour on this road. And if you have in your car a speedometer, it is fairly accurate in, by its little needle, or maybe it's even digital, and it, it can tell you the speed that you're going. And you glance down at your speedometer, and the number 75 appears <laughs> on your speedometer. You need to ask yourself this question Do I fear God, or do I fear cops? Am I driving in such a way that I'm constantly looking in my rear view mirror, constantly checking my side mirror, I got the guys covered up on the side, I'm coming up from the back. Okay, I always know they come up the right hand side, they scoot across the right behind you, they tag you, you're gone. If you live in that kind of fear, you're not living in the fear of God. And to my I know it may sound so simple, but to me this is the greatest test. If you want a thermometer of your spiritual walk, this is what I use for me. I drive down to the seminary three days a week. And I got to go to work, and I got to go to the seminary, and I got to study, and I got to go here and go there. And when I'm on the freeway, I want to fly, and everybody around me is flying. And as I studied through this this whole idea of fear, and through through especially this chapter 13 of Romans about a year ago, I really got convicted of that. And so I started driving 55, and I hate driving 55. 55 is hard to do, especially when you get those trucks that come right up behind you about this far from your bumper and start flashing their high beams. You feel really confident about yourself when you're in your little Hyundai. And that truck is pushing, you know, just kind of saying, get out of my way or I'm going to drive over top of you. And I get asked myself then, do I fear God or do I fear the truck? And I have to admit that oftentimes I fear the truck a little bit. But in essence, what I need to fear is I need to fear God. I don't expect all of you to leave here and start driving 55. I wish you would because I think it's one of the greatest testimonies that Christians can have you've got a cheese sticker on your bumper, you better drive 55 in my books. Otherwise, take it off and be in sin. Oops. <laughs> of course, you all know that whenever I drive anywhere now, I've just made myself, I will drive 55 the rest of my life because I said that. And if any of you see me, you will crucify me. The fear of authority comes from the fear of God. When you sign in for chapel, you sign in your church attendance. <laughs> Some laughers in the back there. When you sign in for chapel, what do you fear? Do you fear God when maybe you only made one church service, but you want to circle two? You need to fear God and live in the fear of Him. It takes place in the simplest things in life. Some of you really fear God. That's why you're here. You want to make a difference with your life. You're sacrificing. You're really doing it. I can, I can list off probably... A dozen of you right now who I know in a really personal way who, who just encouraged me by your lives. And I know there's, there's, there's hundreds more of you that w- would be exactly the same, but I just don't know you that well. Some of you are really, really doing it. And to you, I say, excel still more. Excel still more. Fear God. Understand who He is. Search out His Scriptures. Begin to understand His power, His holiness, His judgment, and how He is a God to be feared. And yes, we are His friend, but He is still a God to be feared. That is His eternal gospel. Some of you don't fear God. And you demonstrate it by your lives. Maybe you're having sex with your girlfriend. Maybe you're out drinking a couple nights a week. Go down to the bars or something. I don't know what you're doing. Maybe you don't do anything at all. Maybe you just sit in your dorm... You get aged, and you just don't do anything good, and you don't do anything bad. You just exist. You just exist. When I see you, I grieve inside. Because I don't think you truly fear God. Death can scare you. When I fell out of that boat, I was terrified. So I saw the image of that man being dragged up on the beach. I thought, I don't want that to be me. All I could think about was coming up out of the water and being smashed by a boat and then chewed up by the blades of the engine, being scraped off the bottom of the lake. Some kind of search and rescue team. When I came up, I remember I was so scared, it didn't seem like I could scream enough. I remember coming up and just... just, I I couldn't do anything because of the fear in my heart. There was another time in my life sitting with a friend in a car. And as we were sitting there, I was kind of confessing some sin in my own life to him. As I did that, he would confront me with the truth of the Word, the truth of the purity and the holiness and the trustworthiness of God. And as he did that, I began to think about my own sin, and the picture of my sin began to grow and to grow, and not in some kind of you know inward gazing where I just got stuck there, but as I began to see my sin, I thought, you know, my sin is nothing like a little boy standing out in a pile of manure, reaching down and grabbing up handfuls of it and throwing it in the sky and saying, "Take that, God! That's what I think of you! Take that! That's what my sin was like." And when you take that and you put it into the presence of a holy God, you will know fear. Because sin is foolishness. Sin is folly. And when you see your sin in the presence of a holy God, you will fear that God. I saw the wickedness of my own sin, and I feared God. If you've never known that kind of fear, if you've never known the fear of God, the fear of a wicked sinner in the hands of an angry God, then perhaps you've never known God. If you have, then that is the fear that is to control you, the fear of God. Let's pray. Our Father, it can be a terrifying thing to be in the hands of the living Lord, especially for those of us who do not know you. What a comfort it is, Lord, that we as believers in Christ As God-fearers can come to you. You are our friend, our father, our redeemer, one who is closer than a brother. And we give you praise and we give you glory for that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being our God. Father, I pray right now for those whose lives have not experienced the fear of God. To whatever extreme, I know that there is no standard that we all have to meet but for those who have never tasted of your presence, have never tasted of their own sinfulness in your presence, I pray that, God, you would work in their hearts. I know that I can say nothing to change them. It is truly you, Lord. I pray, do a work now. Do it right now, Lord, in that heart. Help us to know the fear of you, to walk as a campus who fears God. We don't have to be like the world because we fear you and we want to be like you. For those who do fear you, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them, help them to excel still more. I pray for myself. I fall so short, Lord. I fall so short fearing you. I pray, God, that you would instill in my heart a terror of the living God. I ask your blessing upon all of us in this day. Help us to walk in the fear of the Almighty. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed.